There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon, and today we're doing one of our favorite episodes. We love answering your questions. If this is your first time listening, you might not yet be a member of the My Millennial Money Facebook group, but this is where all the gold is. And it's also where you get to ask us questions that we answer and we give you a shout out on the podcast. So we've got a variety of questions today looking at changing from a PPR into an investment, land banking, talking mortgages, redraw, offsets, all sorts of things. So a mixed bag of everything property related. Let's dive into it. Okay, John, we do have a bit of variety today. We love variety. We do. Now, some of these are actually going to be an episode in themselves because they're just like big questions. So if you don't hear your question answered today, don't stress. It's probably been promoted to an episode. (laughs) You've been promoted. So... Now, let's start with the first one, which comes from Matthew. And Matthew has said, would turning your PPR into an investment property, an investment loan with interest only, impact borrowing power for upgrading a PPR? Would love your pitfalls and things to consider. Added context, we are in an area of relatively good growth, separate title townhouse in Canberra that we will outgrow at some point in the future, owned for almost three years, good rental potential. So basically, Matthew is sounds like he is debating whether to change his current townhouse, which is his PPR, into an investment property to then go for the next I assume, upsizer. Yeah, it's an interesting question that, Emily. And and thank you, Matthew. I think there's a few parts that we want to unpack in that, or I do anyway. But uh, the first one would be for me, when does he want to buy his upgraded principal place and what's he going to use to buy that? Because, and I, and I had a chat with someone this morning, if we use equity to buy our principal place of residence, we're essentially loaning 102% of the purchase price when we include stamp duty. So for me, it's we want to limit the bad debt in our life, which arguably is your principal place of residence included in that. So we want to use a cash deposit and ideally 20%. So if Matthew's going to upgrade, when is he going to do that? What's his saving rate look like? And then reverse engineer the process, i.e. if I'm saving 30 grand a year and I need 200K as a deposit on a million dollar property, then it might cost me, uh, it might take me six or seven years to save that, right? So the whole converting your, invest, uh, your principal place into an investment property, that's fine, but we've got to think about what, what that next play might look like. And, and if we're just going to use equity for the investment property, is that the best strategy? It's great to be able to keep a property and, and let it perform for you because that's generally what good property will do. 
Uh, however, is it to the detriment of, of your, your new upgraded principal place? Interesting that Matthew's only held his property for three years so far. I think that's also, and it, he has said there's good rental potential and it has been an area of relatively good growth. I always query when people look at this scenario, is this the best place to invest or is it conveniently going to work out for you because you don't have, you know, buying and selling costs of another investment property in addition to your upsizer? I think people don't consider that enough because they just kind of look, well, I'll just flip it because, yeah, the, the rent covers what the mortgage repayments would be yeah. and it's good enough for me. But I think you've got to do a bit more deeper analysis in that case scenario. Also, even one step back, when you bought that property, what was your intention of the purchase? Was it to live in? Yes. Or did you go in with an investing mind frame and, and how does that shape up in the long term? Yeah, and the obvious one of selling that principal place of residence is capital gains tax-free. You, you take your cash, put it down on your new home as a, as a good sold deposit and you don't pay any capital gains tax. So that's not the be-all and end-all, but it's definitely a factor to consider for Matthew um, as opposed to just having a, a portfolio that he continues to grow, which is fantastic. What are the running costs? And I know in Canberra, the, the yields are pretty outstanding. Like oh, okay. the, the rents, government, defence, everyone else that goes to Canberra for work, they're paying pretty high rents or, uh, relative to the property prices. So I think in a townhouse, he is going to get pretty good rents for that. So if it's wiping its own face per se, you, you say, well, okay, that's pretty stress-free for him. But my concern would be the savings rate going forward to buy that principal place and, and what time frame has he actually got on that. Just to touch on something you said there, what would you consider to be an outstanding yield? Like what would be considered good versus like really good? Yeah. So it depends, doesn't it? Like, you know, in Melbourne where you are, 3% gross yield is 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 good for a lot of houses, isn't it? So you come to a regional centre and, and historically they've probably hovered around that sort of 5 to 6%. Um, a lot of capital cities have been the same. But I think with the, the less land you've got, the higher the yield generally might be. So in a townhouse like that, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't 5%, so dollar per thousand if, he's, if he pays. If he was to buy that tomorrow for 700000 uh, that it might rent for close to 700 uh, a week. And, and obviously what we've seen the last 12 months is a bit of catch-up, haven't we? It's like, okay, we've had growth in the markets around the country, but now then the yield or the rents are catching up to that. And depending on which side of the fence you're on as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, if, you, if you're a tenant, it's not the, not the best thing. But yeah, so yeah, generally speaking, I think Good problem to have, Matthew. You've got some growth there and, and you're looking to upsize. And, and the upsizer is the most common type of buyer out there. So when you say you've got ups, upsizers, you've got first home buyers, you've got investors, the upsizers, I think, and we'll talk about this in, in um, another question, I believe, but the upsizer is maybe sitting on the fence at the minute saying, well, are my running costs of my life certain at the moment? Has this whole inflation thing under control? Am I, is the petrol going to go up? Is food going to continue to rise? Are interest rates going to rise? If the answer to that's starting to be a no, probably not, it's pretty stable now, now we can sit back and say, right, I want to upgrade to a better location or a better dwelling. Now I'm going to do that, hence the, uh, the pressure on property prices again. 
yeah, there's simply not enough to keep up with the demand, is there? Mm. We're all feeling it. We are indeed. Moving on to the next question, there's a question here from Scott and Scott says, having a few properties built lots of equity, living off equity strategies, line of credit living. Thanks for this question, Scott. I think it's actually been a bit of a brain dump. Having a few properties, built lots of equity, living off equity strategies, line of credit living, three mil or more in property, 5% increases each year, 100K living expenses, rents cover house expenses, but not enough to live off. Can you please unpack? (laughs) (laughs) Let's unpack this, Scotty. So if this is his life at the moment or anyone else's out there, I think this is the common let's build a portfolio and and look for long-term wealth creation at maybe the vulnerability or or, uh, expense of our lifestyle now. So he's saying, well, my property values are going up by 5% per year. So if I've got a $3 million property portfolio, it goes up by 5% a year, that's 150K a year that my wealth is increasing by. We, we can't save that. We can't contribute to super at that level. Like that's just extreme numbers, isn't it? And, and they're realistic numbers if you've got a portfolio of that size for sure. The 100K living expenses, that's a reasonable amount. That is. What are you doing? I don't know. Well, <laughs> eight grand a month roughly. So there may be a, a chunk, a large chunk of that going to your own mortgage, right, which is feeling uh, it, it's hurting a lot of people at the moment with the increased cost of, uh, of, uh, of the mortgage. But he's saying rents cover house expenses but not enough to live off. So he's saying, well, hang on a minute, have I designed this portfolio well enough or did I actually want a positive cash flow portfolio? Right. And I think people come to us and say, well, I want to live off my property portfolio. I, I don't want to burst everyone's bubble, but that is extremely hard. Like if you're if you're earning, I don't know, let's say eight grand a month, that's about a hundred k a year. And if you're getting six of that into your pocket each month after tax, whatever it might be, you've now got to generate six grand worth of property income after we've paid the mortgage to it, the rates and insurance, the property management fee, the council rates, everything. That's very hard, right? We're talking probably 15 to 20 positively geared properties. And when we say positively geared in today's interest rates, we're probably talking like they need to be 8, 9, 10% to the point where that, that's a gross yield, by, by the way. So each property is giving us maybe 4, 5K a year positive cash flow after we've paid all the bills. If we've got 10 of those, that's 40 to 50 grand a year, right? That's a lot of property management. That's a lot of you – know, we're running a side hustle here, aren't we, in, in property? Pretty much. <laughs> if it's generating that much of an income, and I think there is this illusion that that's actually possible, but it's yeah. really – the reality is where people actually make their money in property or can you know live off property is actually when they sell them down mm-hmm. and they have this cash available that they streamline into, you know, fund their retirement or whatever it might be. But it's really not like I don't – I don't think I can name anybody I know who is actually living off the leftover of once everything's paid, the actual income of the the properties that they own. No, and actually I don't think I can either. But what I've done personally is over the journey sold down on the odd property to create a chunk of money that can either come off my mortgage or lifestyle experiences, trips, whatever, right? 
but the the actual cash flow in your bank account each month like share dividends or something like that, extremely hard to do. Not impossible, but it, it is very hard. And they don't have to be performing really well. Like I think about my own properties and one of them I get like, I think I'm positive 70 bucks a month. Like what does that get? Even half a tank of petrol. Like it's Foxtel. Not, yeah. Yeah. yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I was always told, and I think I've probably said it a few times on the show, cash flow pays the bills, capital growth sets you free. Yes. Right. Oh, I and love that. You like that? Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I haven't said it. <laughs> I haven't heard you say it. <laughs> okay. So back to Scott's comments or or, uh, or maybe questions, I don't know what they are, but they're observations and they're awesome ones, is to say, well, before we start this portfolio, if you're sitting here listening saying, I want to build a property portfolio, we've got to be thinking, what do we want from it? What do we want it to deliver us in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years time? Uh, because property is a rigid beast. Like you just can't mess around with it to the point where you look back and say, oh, actually didn't want that. Now I'm going to sell it because all these associated costs come with selling and and buying and trying to find a better property to replace the previous one. It just doesn't work that well if we're doing that. So uh, I think, yeah, Scott, if you've got a portfolio that's doing that and it's the portfolio doesn't cost you a lot to, to, to handle and to run, fantastic, but don't put any pressure on it for it to be able to deliver you 50, 60 grand of passive income a year because it's already giving you 150 of, of growth. It's just paper value, that's all. But don't wait until you're 60 to then start enjoying it. Exactly. Not worth it, is it? No, not at all. And I think maybe that's where this illusion comes from of like being able to have the passive income come through is that you enjoy life kind of as you go. But having a plan in place more than anything, a lot of this comes back to what are your goals, what's your plan, and being realistic with what that can look like for your personal circumstances is quite important. Yeah, absolutely. Well done, Scott. Good question. Now, Tyson has a question. What is considered good debt? Example being, I can currently pay off my mortgage completely or I can keep around 100K in it since my rate is still at 2.7% until November. That sounds like a pretty solid rate there you've got, Tyson. Yeah, well done, Tyson. But back to the the question on what is good debt, It's uh, I think it's very relative to, I mean, in terms of defining what it is, it can change based on who you're talking to and what their circumstances are and their overall portfolio. But what I would personally consider good debt, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts, John, is I see good debt being put towards more so the investment side of things than a PPR, probably because I'm a bit biased being a rent investor, I must say. That's where that kind of comes from. And you might have a different opinion, but in my mind, good debt is put into assets that appreciate in value and don't cost you too much to hold mm. in the interim. Yeah, great. It's, it's simply an income producing asset. So whether that be business, shares or property, if it's generating an income of some description, then it's classified as good debt according to the ATO, uh, who are pretty important in this um, country. It means we can claim the running expenses of that um, asset through things like yeah depreciation or the interest on the on the mortgage or the loan that we've got for that uh, asset or any of the running costs. So yeah, essentially that's that's what good debt is, and that's why I personally say, and a lot of people disagree with me, and that's cool. 
that our own mortgage is bad debt because there's no income associated with it. Mm-hmm. Mm. But then I guess you've got to have a roof over your head, don't you? Well, yeah, roof over your head and the fact that it generally goes up in value over time. Not always, but yeah, generally does. So, so Tyson says, example being, I currently can pay off my mortgage completely or I keep around 100K in it since my rate is still at 2.7% until November. What are we doing? Well, I think the biggest thing is where Tyson's risk appetite sits or where I guess he gets security from because for some people it's a no-brainer they would just pay it off. Um, For others, they might look at what they could do with the flexibility of having the 100K sitting there and maybe go again or put cash towards something else. So look, if it was me, I probably wouldn't pay it off completely if it's grown in value, Why, you know keep it at 2.7%. Mm. I mean, it is ending in November, so there's a timeline on this, but yeah. Yeah. A, a few things for me, Tyson, is he's questioning what is considered good debt. So I'm saying it's an he thinks it's an investment property. Mm-hmm. So if it's an investment property, I'm not paying it off. I'm, I'm keeping 100K and keeping it for maybe my future principal place, it can sit in the offset account against that investment property if you want to do that. It's uh, buffers in our life. It's if I want to do some further investing, I've got that 100K there. Once I've paid that 100K down, we can't get that back. The only way we can get that back is to sell or to get it back via equity. Yeah. And that's going to cost us money to get that back because of the, it's now a loan. So... I would I would keep it pretty liquid, Tyson, but understand, like you mentioned, Emily, what do we want to do? What do we want to do in our life in the next three to five years? Uh, what have we got going on? Are we likely to have start a family? Like we need to be cash heavy for that. Are we are we going to be on a single income? Is it is there another person involved in this situation as well? So there's a whole range of questions we need to ask ourselves. And this this is a good thing about these questions. We can't make them up, but It's all about 90% of it is what's internally happening in our life first before the external stuff of is the market going to grow or is interest rates going to rise or is inflation on the the hop. Like there's so many things out of our control that we focus on first. We've got to stop that. We've got to be able to sit here and say, what do I want? What's 10-year John look like? What, what, What am I doing when I'm... How old that be? 56, right? <laughs> so what, what do we want in our life? And then angling to the point of view that we're not backing ourselves into a corner. And I think paying down that loan by 100K would potentially back him into a corner. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back and thrash some more out. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Back from the break with an interesting question from Cooper. Cooper asks, I've heard that an affordable mortgage is either under 30% or three times your annual income. So 30% being, I'm assuming that's 30% of your annualized income is allocated, kind of same with rents as well. It's how they assess it most of the time. Or um, when Cooper says three times your annual income, that would be the collective value of the mortgage that you're holding. Yes. Yeah. How relevant or irrelevant is this? Why do people buy homes with short-term interest rates in mind, not long-term averages? What a question, Cooper. And I mean, this is honestly, why do people do this? Because I actually think the basis of all of it, particularly in the first home buyer space, is they don't know anything different. The rates that you enter in at the time of purchase, and I've seen it time and time again, uh, what you assume should just be how it's going to be. And as the last 12 to 18 months have showed us, that's not always the case. And historically, it hasn't always been the case either. No, and I think it comes down to one of two things or maybe both of these things. One is they didn't have experts in their corner that were saying, look, we need to forecast for 5% or 6% interest rates because that's historically what it's been over the last 100 years. And secondly, I think... We just haven't educated ourselves on what was the norm, right? Because these people in our corner are, are, are there for a, a job and a role, but they're also not mind readers. So they don't know what you don't know. So we've got to continue to self-educate in our life so we can factor in these things that Cooper's talking about. But why do people do that? Well, it's I think it comes down to one of those two things. But how relevant is the 30% or the three times annual. That's what the government says is considered mortgage stress, doesn't it? It's like if we're paying more than 30% of our take-home pay to a mortgage, we're considered in mortgage stress. Which is interesting that it's a percent that's applied to everybody because 30% of a 200K annualised salary is very different to 30% of 60k a year in terms of what the the 70% is used for because maybe and it, it could vary but the person earning 60k a year and the person earning 200k a year could potentially have the same living expenses left over with that 70% they got to play with so yeah i've always found it very interesting it's a percent um, I know they have to measure it somehow, but it's relative to the income. Yeah, I'm calling rubbish on it, and uh, I know Glenn likes it. Um, Does he? Yeah, that he likes it thirty percent. Yeah, okay. I'm 
yeah, I'm not signing up for it because you're right. Like it's it's relative to each individual's lifestyle, right? So I might be – my mortgage might be 28% yeah. of my take-home pay but I've got a personal loan, I've got a hex debt, I've got a car loan and I've got investment properties. Yeah. Right. I'm under stress. This is killing me this life, right, at the minute. Whereas you could have 50% of your take-home pay is going to your mortgage and you've got none of what I've just mentioned. You're, you're on your own, you've got no kids and life's pretty straightforward. Yeah, which is almost <laughs> very accurate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, into, I think about my own yeah personal situation and, yes, you know, well, my rent, not my mortgage, yeah. is um, certainly a, a higher percentage than 30%. However, it's also the lifestyle piece. Yeah. You pay that to be in a certain area. Uh, and you actually reduce expenses in other parts, i.e. my commute, your yes. fuel, accessibility to amenity and shops and friends and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I have to agree with you. The, the 30% is kind of a bit rubbish. I think we should throw it out. And Yeah, I think what it does though is it creates an awareness to say, well, oh, am I above or below the 30%? It maybe reminds me to just check in with my own cash flow. It's it's taking the average Australian and saying, okay, am I under or over? Oh, if that's the test, let's see what it is. And then, oh, hang on a minute. This is, I'm actually spending more than I'm earning. Something's gone wrong here, yeah. right? So it's maybe a check-in point. So keep it there. But for listeners, I, I don't think it's a hard and fast if we're 31%, it's a, it's a no no, no show. Like we could be sitting in an auction saying, oh, if I, if I bid another 5,000, that's going to tip me into 31%. No mm. go. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we're not treating it that way. Yeah. Don't take it too literally. Apply yeah. your own circumstances to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good question, Cooper. Well done. And, and good observation too. Following on a similar line to that, there's another question actually on the post around what is a sensible mortgage and how do you arrive at that number? It says we are struggling at the moment to we are struggling at the moment with this. Pay around nine hundred thousand in a blue chip suburb of Melbourne for a villa unit or move thirty to forty Ks out to get a smallish house for half the cost. Please help. And do you know what? This comes up so often yeah. when people are trying to land and I always say focus on the repayment, not the purchase price. Like obviously you have to have a purchase price, mm. but look at the repayment first. Look at how different that is to what you're currently allocating to either rent or a mortgage if you're upsizing and then work backwards from there because people focus a lot on a purchase price and it gets me into this area. But when they translate that into repayments, they're like, oh, shivers. Like that might look a bit yeah. scary for me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like this is... 50% of all clarity calls I'm doing at the moment yep. is, is this here. Right? Yep. So great question. We haven't got an hour um, for me to <laughs> unpack this. But, but what I would say is like it, it's the, the sensible mortgage thing is, is one thing. And you mentioned repayments. Like the repayments are really key. You've, you've got to understand, well, what's my lifestyle like and how much do I need for enjoyment versus how much am I putting towards the mortgage and how much do I prioritise the mortgage? Like we're talking about the percentage of take-home pay. Mm. You might be happy with 50% because you don't go out for meals or you don't have coffees and things like that, whereas others might not prioritise the roof over over their head and just say, well, 
30% or 20% is my maximum. So I don't think there's a general figure there. But more importantly, there's a very different lifestyle in buying in a Melbourne unit villa or 40K away from a lifestyle point of view. Where do I work? Do I work at home? Do I know anyone 40K from Melbourne? Do I need a backyard or am I happy with, with low maintenance? Like all these, again, coming back to what's in our control, we've got to be thinking about these lifestyle choices, um, not just this is the mortgage and, and this is the purchase price and what I get for it. I actually think the only way to truly know the answer to the question of grappling with villa, closer or house out is actually rent one or the other first yes. and see it. Very good. And and I don't actually think in that situation that rent money is dead money at all because it's actually an education process that could save you a lot of money down the track, even just to get, even if it's like three months, do a long stay Airbnb and just try out the area. And I know I've stressed this on other episodes before, but I'm really passionate about it because it's so much to commit to an area without even having lived there before. And if you get 12 months down the track, you don't like it and you're either forced to sell it or change it to an investment property and it's not the greatest investment, I think that's a big money mistake in my opinion. Absolutely is. And that, that's a great tip. Um, so maybe you might try and do that. But uh, I suppose the, <laughs> the everyone wants something tomorrow, don't they? They like, do. And, uh, We're millennials. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like we wait 12 months. Oh, that's too long. What if property grows in front of me and before my eyes now I can't afford it? Like, is that a least costly mistake than the one that you've mentioned where I go and buy I put all my chips in and then in 12 months I hate it and I I wish I'd never done it. So Yeah, Yeah, which actually just on that note, I have heard a lot of people who, a handful of people who did do the sea change thing in 2020 and are now coming back in towards the city and and made a decision on a short-term basis and are actually regretting it Mm -hmm. and finding it very hard to rent those properties out long-term because they're not actually in desirable areas for long-term. So, or the the yields just really aren't there, to be honest. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky one. But put it this way: you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it. No, or at least taking a mechanic with you. Exactly. Mm. So, do your research. That's it. Kick the tires. Well, that one could be interesting, Mills. Mills Alexander has asked: I just bought into a self-managed body corporate three townhouse lot in Brisbane. Very low maintenance, common property for a driveway and single hedge running along the fence. That's pretty typical. Any tips for continuing a self-managed body corporate? Things that might be missed by a first-home buyer to ensure we are making it simple and ticking off everything we need to. Well. Body corporates come up a lot for first-home buyers because many are buying into a townhouse complex or even an apartment complex. I would say when you're in the apartment space, it's just like 99% of the time it's a body corporate company who manage it and they know everything you need to tick off. In Mills' situation where they are just one of three and it's self-managed, generally speaking, what's required is the building insurance because if they're attached walls, the Uh, public liability insurance for the common property being the driveway and then they might have someone trim the hedge, maybe keep it neat. So things that might be missed, I mean, there's not too much to miss at that sort of level, I don't think. I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I think maybe Mills, we've 
we've uh, heard the horror stories of strata and body corporate and freaking out. I've, I need to make sure I'm, I'm dotting my I's, which is awesome. But, yeah, I, I think when you've got a three – like we built two townhouses together and, and there is a, a common area, a common driveway and a shared wall, but essentially nothing was officially set up as such. Like it's uh, – yeah, who who cuts the hedge out the front? Well, that's that's an arrangement that's maybe put into writing, and that that's about it. And how much we dedicate towards that? Uh, yeah, it shouldn't be too much more, uh, unless there's something happening in that council area in Brisbane that's different. Maybe you just check that, wouldn't you? The other thing would be just to make sure that the other owners are on board with the way it's running, and maybe if one of those properties were sold to an investor who's maybe overseas or just not contactable mm. often than trying to navigate how communication is sorted out. But really, you're actually saving money by not giving it to a body corporate company because no. their management fees to do what you can reasonably do yourself um, probably yeah. wouldn't be worth it in this situation. No, I wouldn't be doing that. And, and you wouldn't think there's a lot of communication needed anyway. It's no. pretty much going to be a set and forget. Maybe if the gardener can no longer cut the hedge, then find a new one and, yeah, away we go. I know we said one more, but can we just do one more quick one? Yeah, why not? Okay. <laughs> Shannon's asked the question, I'm looking at selling my house to purchase with my partner and he has never bought before. I currently have an equity loan on my house for my investment property. I know I have to refinance the equity loan when I sell. Goodbye to 2.5%. That sounds sad. But how does it work when it will be against the shared property but only in my name? Would um, joint tenants or tenants in cop? in common change how this works. Any help would be great. Shannon, you need a really good mortgage broker on board for this sort of thing, but it's definitely a common situation where people do get together and one person does have equity tied up in another property and the way that that contribution can fall can look quite different. But I would say in this case, you really need a good broker on board to advise and maybe even maybe even some legal advice as how the structure looks going into it from a um, finance perspective and the liability of each of you should you ever part ways. You want to have that outlined well ahead of time. Yeah, and that, and that's where the joint tenants and tenants in common would be applicable is, well, okay, in where, if someone dies then either the half goes to that person, the other person or it's distributed to someone that you choose. So whichever way. But that, from a refinance point of view, equity sort of story, that's irrelevant, isn't it? The joint tenants, tenants in common. But, yeah, you're right. Good mortgage broker would uh, flesh this out. Essentially, if yours, you've got the property in your name, you need to get the equity out based on your income and, and serviceability and then the purchase obviously with the, for the new home uh, is going to be with both of you. So your servicing is is uh, is pretty strong now because there's two of you who are buying or taking on that, that new loan essentially. And for Shannon or anyone else who needs a good mortgage broker contact, go to sortyourmoneyout.com forward slash get help. And there's actually a huge panel of mortgage brokers that uh, – Glenn has personally screened, vetted, <laughs> and will line you up with someone who is suitable for your circumstances. Yes, absolutely. Good one, Shannon. Well, I think that's a wrap, John. That's a wrap. Yeah. Fantastic questions. Thank you. We, uh, we didn't get to them all, but we w- hopefully will try our best in time. But uh, thanks for putting them 
taking the time to put them in. And hey, if we answered your question today and you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to give us a little review on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps more people hear about our show and we appreciate the feedback. Absolutely, we do. Until next time. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.